Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. And welcome back to another episode of Behind the Knife. Uh, This week, we're lucky enough to have uh, Dr. Romanelli. He's the Associate Professor of Surgery at the University of Massachusetts Medical School at Bay State Medical Center, and he's the Medical Director of Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery. Today, he's going to talk with us about notes and uh, minimally invasive surgery in general. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Romanelli, to Behind the Knife, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And we're also lucky enough to have uh, one of my friends from medical school who is a resident at Bay State Medical Center, Erica Kane. Uh, Erica, welcome to Behind the Knife. Thanks so much, Kevin. I appreciate it. So, Dr. Romanelli, one of the things uh, that you're known for is you recently published a uh, textbook on uh, notes surgery. And uh, I was hoping uh, you could just talk to us. It's a pretty foreign concept to most residents out there. Um, If you can talk about even what notes means, uh, how you got involved in it, and... uh, you know, what the future of NOTES is. Absolutely. Um, so NOTES is an acronym, like many things in medicine, we pronounce our acronyms uh, to the annoyance of many. Uh, and it stands for Natural Orifice Transluminal Endoscopic Surgery. Let's think about that for a minute. We can divide that into three parts. It's surgery through a natural orifice, such as the mouth, uh, such as the vagina, such as the anus. I suppose if you want to be really imaginative, the urethra. Um, and it, it goes across the lumen of a hollow viscous. So, for example, across the wall of the stomach, um, across the wall of the vagina, to gain access into the abdominal cavity or other cavities. It could be the thoracic cavity as well uh, or the mediastinum. And, uh, and it's done primarily with an endoscope. So it's an operating platform using endoscopy. Um, and so it's really marrying the, the concepts and ideas that endoscopists um, have developed and come up with, um, with abdominal general surgery. And the aim of notes is pretty simple. It's, if you think about it, it's the holy grail of, of what we intend to do surgically, which is to create less trauma to the body to make recovery faster and to make pain less. Now, we're a long way away from there because we don't have the instrumentation and tools to make this sound anything less than science fiction or far-fetched. But there are some things that can be done, and in fact, there's one operation that's taken root that grew out of this, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, So I think this is still futuristic, um, but what we are doing is moving the envelope a little bit towards the even less minimally invasive. And I think that's the spirit of how to think about what notes is even less invasive surgery. Where are we currently with notes? What procedures are possible um, with notes? Well, possible is a dangerous term because it's possible for you to mow your lawn with a pair of scissors, but you probably (laughs) wouldn't want to do it. And that's a good analogy for where we are with notes procedures today because the tools are designed to take polyps out of the colon or the stomach. So they're not designed to do organ removal in the abdomen. Um, and so it's, it, it's not catching on as a mainstream um, operative platform yet because it's just technically too hard to perform. Uh, the operation that grew out of the notes concept is what's called peroral endoscopic myotomy which is an operation to treat achalasia of the esophagus and really has become the mainstream main option in many centers around the world. Um, It it originated in Japan and it actually grew out of um, their knowledge with endoscopic submucosal dissection for small gastric cancers. Um, But really the the movement of, of the, developing these notes type procedures is what inspired the surgeon to try to marry the concept of the dissection done to take small gastric cancers out and instead use it on the muscle of the esophagus. And so poem really grew out of the notes idea and it is now at least in our center and many in the United States and around the world, certainly in Asia, the number one way to treat achalasia of the esophagus replacing laparoscopic heller myotomy. Um, and 
the poem in many cases as a better operation because you're not limited to how much esophagus you can treat. Whereas laparoscopically, you can only cut as much esophageal muscle as you can see and reach. Um, so the poem procedure per oral through the mouth, endoscopic, using an endoscope, myotomy, and we traverse full thickness, so we actually get into the mediastinum, it's a notes procedure that treats achalasia of the esophagus. Um, you know, notes today is limited by its instrumentation, and unfortunately in the United States, um, one company, I'll leave the company's nameless, but one company put a lot of money into developing tools for notes, and the FDA refused to allow their application for the devices to go forward because they felt it was an experimental concept. And so literally $5 million was spent on device development, and they said, well, you can submit these instruments one at a time, but since notes is experimental, we're not going to – any devices for notes are not approvable at the current time. And so that attitude really doomed notes in terms of industry development, and it left it to intrepid surgeons and gastroenterologists. Because one thing to be clear about is that this is, notes is to, to perform notes type procedures requires advanced therapeutic endoscopy skills, and very few surgeons have that. Right. So our notes uh, work developed as a team uh, with two surgeons originally and a gastroenterologist. And in fact, we were the three editors of the book that you mentioned at the top of the podcast. Um, it, it's a team effort between surgery and gastroenterology. So, uh, you know, the, the silos that we typically live in are blurred a little bit by a new technological idea. And we're working together with new and novel ways to treat disease. Um, we've taken poem and we've used those techniques and we're now treating Zenker's diverticulum that way, uh, which is higher up in the esophagus, but we can do a, a very fast, very non-morbid, easy operation, all done endoscopically. Um, we're beginning to entertain the idea and there's already two reasonably large series out in Portland, Oregon and in, um, in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins where they're doing poem type procedures to the pylorus to treat gastroparesis. So, you know, we're beginning to expand the application uh, of poem, but I think um, one way of thinking about notes was it was a really cool idea that sought its application, and I think we found it with these intraluminal procedures that we're now beginning to do more and more of. So, in 2005, I was at the Society of American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeon SAGES. I was at the SAGES annual meeting, and SAGES has always been very pro-technology, and in fact, they have a session called Emerging Technology, which is not a CME part of the meeting, and where conflict of interest is expected as a part of what hmm. you're there to do. In other words, surgeons will be developing devices, and they'll talk about the devices, and even sometimes people from the companies present. So it's, it's an acknowledged upfront, every one of these talks has conflict of interest, and there's no CME, so it, it, it's above board. Um, and the emerging technology session, uh, a man by the name of G.V. Rao from Hyderabad, India, presented a video where he took out an appendix on a patient with acute appendicitis using an endoscope through the patient's stomach. So it was a transgastric appendectomy. And, I mean, the video, which is, which is out there on the Internet and can be viewed by anybody, they gave it to the world, which was a, a really novel and uh, gift, honestly. Um, but the video of watching the appendix be removed from the overtube in the patient's mouth is one of the more shocking <laughs> things I had ever seen in surgery. And anytime I show that video, when I want to give a notes talk. It always elicits an audience full of gasps. Um, and I was, I was at the time being recruited to come to Bay State Medical Center, and I was sitting my about-to-be partner, David Earl, and I looked at him and I said, if I come to Bay State, we're going to do that. And he <laughs> looked at me, and I can't repeat what he said in a podcast, but <laughs> to the effect of, you're darn right we are. <laughs> and so um, when I came to Bay State in 2005, uh, a few months after that meeting, he came to me and he said, you know, we have a gastroenterologist who basically is a frustrated surgeon. And, uh, I, but he, he's very aggressive and he's willing, he's the guy that's willing to do a procedure that nobody else is willing to do. And I'll bet you he'd love to be involved in this. Should I not let him listen to this podcast then? No, it's, <laughs> he even admits it. Uh, he, you know, it's like they say, priests are frustrated singers. You know, he's a frustrated surgeon as a gastroenterologist. He's a true surgical gastroenterologist. And so um, we began a series of 
uh, animal labs where we basically decided we wanted to learn how to do what we saw in that video. Now, one little problem, um, we use the pig model, which is common for abdominal surgery, but they don't have an appendix. <laughs> yeah. So right from the beginning, we're like, well, that's out. We're not going to be able to do transgastric surgery. But we had to learn the, the rules of what happens uh, in an endoscopic operation. In other words, we didn't know what the boundaries were. And one of the things we quickly realized was forward access with a scope makes perfect sense. Retrograde approach uh, with a retroflex scope, everything is backwards and, and is basically at the current time really too hard to do. So for example, to take out the gallbladder to make an opening in the stomach and then to retroflex the gallbladder to make it all the way into the right upper quadrant to work on the gallbladder all your movements become backwards wow. because the scope is at a 180-degree angle, and it's not a stable operating platform. So keeping the scope in that position becomes problematic. <laughs> so we recognized that if we wanted to go to the gallbladder, forward access meant we had to approach it transvaginally. And so we started doing that work uh, in pigs, and we were by no means the first people to do that. The, the first transvaginal cholecystectomy in the world was done at Columbia Presbyterian by a surgeon by the name of Mark Bessler. Um, who not only successfully came up with the idea, trained on how to do it, gave proper informed consent to a patient who was willing to undergo it, performed it successfully with a safe and successful outcome, he got absolutely flabbergasted, or that's the wrong verb, but just eviscerated by a, another surgeon in the New York Times. Wow. And to be fair, that surgeon, who was a female surgeon, and she said, as a woman, I find this repulsive. But unfortunately... She actually had a lot of laudatory comments, but they didn't use those in the article. So the only part that appeared in the article was her criticism, which was unfortunate because she actually went through a whole thing about how I'm impressed with how he, you know, did the proper animal research. He, you know, didn't offer it to a patient until he knew he could do it and reproduce it. He went through the institutional research board. He did everything right. And, and it's fascinating to see this. However, I wouldn't want this, which is where she was going with it. And the reality is that a lot of women don't want transvaginal surgery. And, you know, when we started offering this, because we eventually did the same thing, and we, we did 20 of them in women, and all with successful outcomes. So it's safe. But a lot of women didn't want it. And I found that women who have never had a baby were particularly resistant. Women under the age of 40 would sit there and cross their legs as I was talking to them about it, <laughs> uh, which, was, which was a little weird, <laughs> but, but a common move. I found women over 40 who had had children were usually more than willing to consider it. Um, so like anything, when you're involving the genitalia, there's a little bit of a stigma that is approach, that, that, that is associated with it. And so that's a little bit of an uncomfortable discussion for some women. And, and sure enough, we had people who said yes and then backed out and didn't want surgery because it was the vaginal part they didn't want. They didn't mm -hmm. mind having their gallbladder taken out. But when I use my analogy about mowing the lawn with a pair of scissors, you know, the endoscopic tools that existed at that time were minimal. And so just simple little maneuvers such as division and dissection of tissue were difficult and hard to perform. Um, you know, when you, when you enter the abdomen transvaginally, you have to come up over the sacral promontory. So if you think of a cobra that's about to strike where it's, it's resting up in the air, that's how the endoscope approaches the liver. Uh -huh. So to come up over the sacral promontory, now you have the endoscope at the, at the top of the abdomen, which is insufflated, like in re regular laparoscopic surgery, and the gallbladder is down below. So you have to make all kinds of funny torque maneuvers to actually get to the gallbladder. Wow. So one of the discoveries that we made about notes is simple navigation remains problematic. Scopes just weren't designed to do this. Um, but we, we actually were a part of the only trial that's been done in the world um, between laparoscopic cholecystectomy and notes transvaginal cholecystectomy. And it was a non-inferiority trial. So for your listeners, that means we were only trying to prove that taking out the gallbladder through the vagina was not worse than doing it laparoscopically. And it was a multi-center trial. It was a randomized trial. Um, and what was novel about the trial, and that's a little bit of a pun because the, the acronym, got to have acronyms for all trials, and the acronym actually is novel. It's natural orifice versus laparoscopic. Um, and so 
the, the novelty of the novel trial was that the money to do the trial was all raised by the primary investigators who were themselves a surgeon and a gastroenterologist, and they were not doing the cases. So we had independent third-party PIs for the trial, and they, so they served as the referees and safety monitors, and we actually had a, a, a research organization that helped us. We had independent safety monitors as well, but they ran the trial without doing the cases, which I think was an important distinction. And they raised money from industry. But the other thing they did, and I think you're going to see a publication on just this topic alone, they actually used some of that money to buy an insurance policy to indemnify the trial. What would happen if you were doing a procedure that the insurance company didn't even know the patient was having because all the notes patients, people that got randomized notes, got no bill. Your insurance got no bill. It was a free operation. Wow. So the trial paid for the operation. So what happens if you lacerate a bile duct? Yeah. And now you're going to end up with a $250,000 hospital bill to take care of that patient and an insurance company who says, we're not paying that. Right. You, know, you can't put the patient at financial risk either. That's a risk of, of uh, a trial. So we actually purchased an insurance policy from Lloyd's of London to pay the medical bills of people who suffered harm from this trial. Uh, so it was a very novel way of, of doing research in, in the modern era. And, uh, and credit to the principal investigators, Steve Schweitzberg and Mike Coachman, for coming up with that trial design and their way of funding it. Um, but anyway, the results of the trial, which are coming out this year in the journal Surgical Endoscopy, um, will show that, in fact, we did achieve non-inferiority. And in fact, all the people that did transvaginal gallbladder surgery delivered a safe and, and good outcome for their patients. Wow. Uh, there were a couple of minor complications. There were no major complications. And there was a trend towards less pain in the notes group. So it's certainly possible that were we to develop instrumentation, that could become a very uh, positive way to get into the abdomen that might produce less trauma to the patients. Wow. Now, granted, it leaves men with gallbladder problems out in the cold. That's a story for a different day. But you know, it, it is an interesting thought that maybe if we approach the abdomen transvaginally, the overall amount of pain would be less. Yeah, that is a very fascinating uh, study design um, and interesting results. One thing I'd just like you to describe for our listeners here is can you just briefly take us through a transvaginal cholecystectomy? Like how do you get through the vagina? How do you insufflate? Like because endoscopes obviously don't, I mean, the ones I know don't have a, they can insufflate quite that much um, to like 15 millimeters no, of mercury. You're, you're exactly right. So there's a couple of pieces to that. Um, they do make carbon dioxide insufflators, because remember, regular endoscopy is air, right? right yeah. The laparoscopic surgeries with CO2, but they do make endoscopic CO2 insufflators. So we do use that. But the problem with using the endoscope as your insufflator is it's an on-demand insufflation. You have to press the air button to get it to insufflate. You can't have it on all the time. So most of the transvaginal cholecystectomies that have been done in the United States have had a five millimeter laparoscopic trocar in the abdomen. And in fact, to, for us to gain institutional research board approval uh, or institutional review board approval, um, we had to have a laparoscope in the abdomen watching the endoscope come in through the vagina into the abdomen for safety. Right. So um, to go back to answer your question, we actually would have a gynecologist help us and they would make an opening in the posterior fornix of the vagina and get into the abdomen for us and then turn over the operation to us. Wow. Um, and then we'd watch laparoscopically as the endoscope passed into the abdomen. And once it popped over the sacral promontory, we'd switch the view to the endoscopic view, but we would control insufflation through that five millimeter umbilical trocar, just like you would in any other laparoscopic operation. That way that part was controlled and no different between the laparoscopic and the notes groups. Right. And then what tools do you have on an endoscope to uh, take a gallbladder out? Not many. <laughs> That's part of the problem. So the first thing is endoscopic clips are not suitable for the cystic duct. Right. Um, that has been proven. They can fall off because if you think about a polypectomy, the clip has to surround it um, and close in sort of a round fashion. So closing a hollow lumen with a, a round clip is probably not a great idea. Um, and so to the credit of Dr. Bessler, he knew that and actually bent the clips, um, the endoscopic clips and used an endoscopic clip applier in the case described that he published. And that was in the New York times. And he actually never had a complication from it, but that was a 
an off-label use of that instrument. Of course, one can argue any notes procedure is an off-label use of an endoscope, so let's get that full disclosure out there. But um, he, he modified the clips himself. We did not do that. We used the laparoscopic clip applier to clip the cystic duct and the cystic artery. Um, what we did use was a hook electric cautery, which at the time we made our own. Now there's a commercially available one, which actually works quite well for this. Um, but th- and the hook knife is now a standard endoscopic instrument. But when we did this trial, we would take a Zimon needle knife, which has a floppy little tip at the end, and we'd cut the tip off, leaving a wire, and we'd bend it into the shape of a hook. And so we made our own hook cautery, and that, that was what we used. So it was monopolar cautery, just like we typically do in gallbladder surgery. Um, we could use uh, endoscopic graspers as dissectors. Um, we used a double-channel endoscope, and interestingly, one of the channels had to be used to hold onto the gallbladder. To hold the endoscope in place, you had to grab onto the gallbladder and pull the endoscope up to the gallbladder. Wow. The other thing is, you know, we use four trocars typically to do a laparoscopic cholecystectomy. So how do you retract the gallbladder? And so we used a variety of devices to do that. There are two available on the market, um, and we use both of them, actually. One of them was developed by my colleague down at Yale, Kurt Roberts, who also was in that trial with us. And he made his own device, founded a company, and got the instrument FDA approved and out on the market. And we actually used it in the trial. So, uh, you know, some people are forging ahead and, and uh, forging ahead and are, uh, you know, developing notes instrumentation. But uh, we used a couple of devices for that to help retract the gallbladder. Um, one thing we did experimentally, which it's toxic to humans, so we haven't developed a way to do it in humans. But we actually injected Rio magnetic magnetorheologic fluid. I'm not saying the word right, but um magnetic liquid magnetic fluid into the gallbladder and then this was in an animal and then we used a magnet to retract the gallbladder outside the abdominal wall um so if we can figure out a way to deliver that type of fluid that's not toxic you could potentially inject that and then magnetically retract the gallbladder so i think you know one of the fun things about notes is um there's a sense of intrepid creativity here and uh, a lot of our lab work was doing exactly that you know, um, one of the early debates in notes, and there was a, a group that came together in 2006 and published a white paper on notes and they actually made a big mistake in it. And we were proud to disprove it. Um, they had stated that, that to close the stomach, it had to withstand cough pressure and cough pressures can be high. They can be up to 200 millimeters of mercury pressure. And so we spent a lot of our time in the beginning, figuring out how to answer the question of how do we close the stomach? And we actually invented a device uh, with our friends from Cook Medical uh, to put a purse string around a hole in the stomach. But it was very time-consuming, labor-intensive, and too hard to learn. And frankly, they were going to never sell it. We never even patented it or got it out. We published about it, but we never developed the device for commercial use. Um, We helped develop a device called the padlock, which is an over-the-scope endoscopic clip that you can deploy over a hole in the stomach. And that works quite well. But one night we were having our, our monthly research meeting, which was usually at night over a good meal and some good wine, and uh, got into an, a good academic argument. Is this correct with this cough pressure? And my gastroenterology colleague said, why is it that when you're worried about intra-abdominal compartment syndrome, you put a Foley catheter in and measure the pressure in the Foley catheter? You're making the assumption that the pressure across the bladder wall is zero. So why isn't the pressure across the gastric wall zero? Hmm. And we said, well, because it isn't. And he said, why? And we said, because it isn't. And he said, well, you're wrong. <laughs> and so uh, th- next thing you know, we made a wager over a case of uh, each other's favorite frothy cold beverage. And we just designed an experiment, literally writing on, writing on napkins in this fancy restaurant. We designed an experiment to prove this, and we did it. We actually got a, a, a grant to do it. And we put manometry catheters inside the stomach and inside the abdomen and then simulated coughing and valsalva maneuvers. And long story short, what we discovered is it's actually true that the abdomen is a hollow viscous and the stomach is a hollow viscous. The pressure across the wall is the change in pressure is zero. So that opened up the door for many ways to close the stomach. Um, And in fact, a group in Strasbourg, France, which is one of the leaders in notes in notes development, 
uses an atrial septal occluder and they just stuff it right in the gastric hole and it scars closed and it works perfectly fine. So, um, you know, we had to, we had to answer basic physiologic questions about notes, even know if it was reasonable or safe to perform in patients. And a lot of that came, um, in the laboratory and answering scientific questions. I think everybody was smart enough to go to their labs, not to go to their patients when they saw that video from India. We didn't all try to replicate that. We tried to answer scientific questions so that we could develop it responsibly and really avoid a lot of the mistakes that happened when everybody jumped into laparoscopy in the late 1980s. Yeah, this is such a, an exciting frontier that you don't really see much in surgery nowadays that really is completely open to, to innovation, uh, granted uh, through much regulation and um, oversight, and which must be pretty painful. And I applaud all of you that are involved in these for um, having having the time and effort to uh, push these trials through, because I know it can't be easy. Um, but No, it, it's, it's not. But you know what? It's a good thing because it protects patients. And I think one of the things, that, you know, especially in, in, in 2017, where quality has become a very important concept in what we do. I know it sounds utterly ridiculous to say quality wasn't important before, but we're going to begin to be judged on our outcomes. We're going to begin to be paid on our outcomes. The people that are better at surgery are going to get paid more to do it. And the people that get bad outcomes are going to be paid less to do it. And so it's going to make developing novel techniques like this even harder but I think having a rigorous scientific investigatory method um, is the way to continue to develop surgery. And I think we have to remember that, that at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is patient safety. And so getting good outcomes with well-done, well-performed, well-designed research studies is really the way to move forward. In a lot of ways, it's the way of the past, too. Um, you know, Not everything can be done with a double-blinded, randomized trial, and, and, and that's certainly true, but... By the same token, um, there's no substitute for good science. And I think if we want to move the needle on surgery forward more, we have to remember that. I would think it'd be so important, too, uh, for collaboration in these efforts, um, because one institution really cannot do this and, and push this forward alone, but making sure that you know ep- efforts aren't being duplicated uh, at multiple places and rather than just doing one uh, co- cohesive effort, even if internationally. Well, and to that end, uh, and it's a wonderful segue to a, a comment about that, we have an international note summit that we hold every year. In fact, it's coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, it's currently held at the American Society of Gastrointestinal Endoscopies World Headquarters just outside of Chicago. Um, but the meeting had been held in other cities in the past, San Francisco, Boston, uh, for example. And it draws note surgeons from all, and gastroenterologists from all over the world. And so as POEM developed, all the POEM people would come to the notes meeting and share their results. And from that very first white paper, one of the goals was to be collaborative and not competitive when somebody pushed the envelope forward. It wasn't a race to get your papers published. It was, how did you do that and can you share it with us? And so we were very good about getting together, collaborating, sharing our data, sharing our mistakes. Um, it was an atmosphere of honesty and an atmosphere of mea culpa when things didn't work. Uh, for example, my colleagues out in Portland, Oregon put together this awesome video of which I actually had them present at Sages of all the things that happened that went wrong in poem procedures. Hmm. So, for example, they dislodged an endoscopic cap and got it stuck in the submucosal tunnel and spent an hour and a half trying to get it out. On their fifth attempt, they finally got it out by putting a balloon past it, and blowing up a balloon and pulling the balloon back. Um, and so, you know, they made, they had a massive hemorrhage and they controlled it endoscopically and they showed us how they did it. And so, you know, in surgery, we're often afraid to publish our mistakes, uh, for fear of liability, for fear of embarrassment from, uh, in front of our colleagues, uh, for fear of scorn. But when you're developing something new, your mistakes are as important as your successes and meetings like the International Notes Summit are an encouraging environment where people shared both their successes and their failures. And so we made this crazy procedure where we went through the vagina, into the abdomen, through the diaphragm, into the thorax, and using a stapler, resected a part of the lung. And we didn't really do anything with it, but when we mentioned it to our colleagues, just sort of- This was in a porcine model, in, in by a, the way. Not in, not in a patient, <laughs> I was in a pig. But, I was wondering. You know, 
when we told our <laughs> colleagues, the, the answer we got was, why on earth aren't you showing us the video of that? And why on earth aren't you presenting that? And we're like, because we were just playing around to prove what could be done. And they're like, and why aren't we learning from that? So, and, and honestly, it was one of those, you know, facepalm moments where we're like, oh, we should have filmed that and shown it here. And so, and, and the interesting thing, by the way, um, we did our first notes procedure in 2008. We, we drained a pancreatic pseudocyst into the stomach, which was a, already, a procedure already being done by the gastroenterologists. But we, through the mouth, fired an endoscopic stapler and made a stapled pancreatic, pancreatic pseudocyst gastrostomy. Um, it's the wow. first one ever done in the world. We wrote two papers about it. We're the only ones that have ever done it because unfortunately the stapler came off the market. But we tried to present it at a notes meeting held in Boston and we were told we missed the submission deadline and they wouldn't let us present it. And we said, look, this is an un-CME meeting. Let us tell everybody that people that are going to want to hear this are at this meeting and they steadfastly refused. And wow. so uh, my media department at the hospital decided to call a press conference the day before the notes meeting started. And so we had the Boston Globe at the meeting, which was held in Boston. So imagine the surprise of the people at the notes meeting to read about a world's first notes procedure in the newspaper the morning the meeting was starting. Uh, we got a little ridiculed for that. But hey, you wouldn't let us present. We're getting news out one way or another. <laughs> Needless to say, the next two years, we were presenting our data on that. Uh, so sometimes you have to barge the door down to let yourself into the club. And that's exactly what we did. I was going to say that actually is a good transition into, um, do you want to talk about your role on the um, quality outcomes and safety committee with SAGES? As I mentioned before, quality has become an important focus for surgeons. And there's a statement that means absolutely nothing to most people that listen to this podcast. What does that mean? We, of course we want quality. We want great outcomes. Nobody wants a complication. What does it mean? And so we held about two years ago, we held a summit in Washington, D.C. and asked that question. What does quality mean? Um, and we had different organizations there that have more expertise in it than SAGES. Uh, we had people like the Society of Thoracic Surgeons there. Because the STS has had a database that's been used for 25 years. They are way far advanced in concepts of quality than we are in GI surgery. Um, and so this is not, by the way, happening out of altruism. It's happening out of Obamacare. <laughs> the Affordable Care Act basically stipulates that we're going to start paying physicians by quality. Really what we're doing is we're transitioning from volume-based reimbursement to value-based reimbursement. So let's dissect that for a minute. If you operate on somebody and you have to take them back to the operating room, like the patient you told us about before you started recording, you get paid twice. There's an incentive to do multiple procedures on patients. There's a financial benefit to the, the performers of the procedures. There is no disincentive to have multiple procedures done financially. So we are paid on volume. You want to make more money as a surgeon, you do more operations. We are a volume-based specialty. And in fact, when reimbursements declined in the 90s, surgeons that were doing 100 cases a year started doing 200 cases a year and started doing 300 cases a year, started doing 400 cases a year. And you know the golf games began to suffer. The old Wednesday afternoon on the golf course went away because it was hurting your reimbursement. When we were paid so much to do operations that you didn't have to be busy, surgeons weren't that busy. It's amazing how that works. <laughs> but that's an antiquated way of paying for care. And in fact, we can't sustain it. Our, the percentage of money we spend on health care compared to our gross domestic product, product is so disproportionately more in the United States than it is in other developed nations that we have to get our costs down. And so value-based reimbursement Value is quality over cost. So there's two components to it. It's good outcomes at, less, at lower prices. And so while societies aren't necessarily tackling cost because that's individual hospital-based through purchasing contracts with vendors, that's not something you can really wade into as a society. We certainly can wade into quality. And so we're beginning to ask the question of how do we measure, what does quality mean and how do we measure it? And I would argue that if you sat any physician down and any patient down and asked that question, you'd get vastly different responses. 
And so really where Sages is right now is trying to develop a way to track patient-centered outcomes. It's all well and good if I did a laparoscopic cholecystectomy in 45 minutes and the patient goes home the same day. But what if they had nausea for 10 days post-op? I would consider it a good outcome, patient not so much. What if um, the operation went well, but the patient had enough pain that they missed four weeks of work? Is that a better outcome than the patient that missed two weeks of work? I'm not sure that it is. But the problem is we have no way of measuring those metrics, right? And of course, there are other factors that play into that. You know, if somebody has 12 weeks of paid vacation time or paid sick leave, they're not going back to work in a week. But if somebody stops getting a paycheck the minute they miss work, they are, right? So those are those have artificial confounders. We recognize that. But we really need to develop patient-centered metrics to determine the outcomes of operations. Um, a colon cancer operation today the success might be measured on how many lymph nodes we take out if it's for you know, malignancy. But that's important to the surgeon. You know what the patient cares about? How long they had pain, when they had normal bowel function, when they could eat a regular meal, when they could return to work, when they could return to sexual function, when they could sleep a regular night and roll over and not wake up in pain. And those are all metrics that we really don't understand how to measure in meaningful ways. And so what SAGES as a society is looking at is how do we measure quality when viewed through the prism of the patient? And that's really where we're focusing our efforts. I, I think one thing that brings a lot of heartburn uh, to surgeons around the country is, um, you know, are we going to be able to operate on uh, the sick patients in the future or are we going to have to be selective um, in, in who we operate on? Because clearly that has a, a drastic uh, change. And, and of course, you can sort of account for it just by looking at, you know, out preoperative albumin or creatinine or something like that to determine how sick the patient is. But what, what are ways uh, that you foresee um, this being counterbalanced so that, you know, patients that need an operation, surgeons won't be afraid because of hurting their you know, metrics? Well, they already are. So let's be clear. That's happening now. Um, Whipples aren't being done in 200-bed hospitals. They're transferring them to your hospital and mine. So it's actually already happening where surgeons have – they've become risk-averse not for fear of medical legal problems. They've become risk-averse because they're worried that they can't deliver the outcome that they should be delivering. And I think what you're seeing is a super specialization happening where, you know – Orthopedic surgeons are right hip surgeons, but they won't do a left hip. And that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but we're not far away from that. Um, And really, if you think about it, we know in surgery that the more of a procedure you do, the better you get at it. So the day of the general surgeon doing everything has died. We're just not there anymore. Now we're surgical oncologists and we're bariatric surgeons and we're endoscopic surgeons and we're colorectal surgeons. I mean, when I trained and I trained in the late 90s, we had lots of colorectal surgeons. They were called general surgeons. We had eight, eight vascular surgeons at my hospital. This was in Morristown, New Jersey, that were themselves general surgeons as well. They weren't just vascular surgeons. So I think the first step towards what you were describing, Kevin, is specializing into fewer procedures that you do more often. That's going to produce better outcomes. When laparoscopy exploded in the 90s, anybody that was good at it did nissen fundoplications. And we got bad results, and the gastroenterologist stopped referring them. Now, you only see the advanced laparoscopic fellowship trained guys even trying to tackle this in fundoplications. And many general surgeons just go, yeah, I don't do that, and refer them to the MIS guys. The fact that we have MIS guys is, is a further testament to how we keep specializing and moving further and further away from the general surgeon concept. Um, and so the first step is we, we are super specializing Uh, The second step is that the sicker people are getting shunted to the bigger hospitals where they're better equipped to deliver a good outcome with 24-7 critical care availability, with teams of specialists that can care for the many things that go wrong with sick patients. Um, The third thing is I think surgeons have to look in the mirror and ask an important question. Should I be doing this procedure? And in the past, that would be viewed as a sign of weakness. And in the future, that will be a sign of the, the strength, you know, of, of smart thinking. Of if somebody says I shouldn't be the surgeon doing this, they're probably right. Definitely, very interesting. A lot is changing uh, uh, on an annual basis here. 
Dr. Romanelli, one thing we wanted to talk to you about um, is you're an expert in minimally invasive surgery, obviously, but um, some, some more of the more conventional minimally invasive surgery. Uh, one thing we really haven't talked much on the podcast, and we try and make this section um, our kind of tips and tricks and, and discussion here uh, pertinent for the resident that's going to be heading to the operating room or he's going to be in preoperative conference. And we're hoping to... Uh, use your experience with ventral hernia repair and uh, the laparoscopic approach to that, you know, how you evaluate a patient and decide they're an appropriate candidate for it and kind of what techniques uh, that you use um, to have a successful hernia repair. Well, this is a perfect segue from the last segment because a lot of times I don't do them. Um, So the first thing I look at is the size of the defect. And if it's larger than 10 centimeters, I no longer repair them. I actually refer them to colleagues that perform component separations, which I never took on. And that sort of, for me, was that sentinel moment of a man needs to know his limitations, and that was my limitation. I just really didn't want to learn it. I was already doing a million other things, and you can't do it all. And so um, the first thing I look at is, is it a defect that should be bridged with a piece of mesh, or is it a defect where some type of closure of the abdominal wall musculature will deliver a more functional outcome. Heck, early in my career, I was putting in, th- I was bridging 30 centimeter defects and loss of domain defects with this giant sheet of, of uh, PTFE. And patients would come back two years later with basically the same symptoms of ventral hernia. And you get a CAT scan and say, nope, all of this are underneath that mist, which is bulging out through that hole in the muscle. So you don't have a hernia recurrence. Thanks and have a nice day, ma'am. And, of course, patients weren't happy with the outcomes, right? right? So, I mean, now I wouldn't do that anymore. I would refer a patient for a component separation. So I think the first thing about ventral hernia is we have to divide ventral hernia into ventral hernia repair or abdominal wall reconstruction. And the larger defects really do much better with abdominal wall reconstruction. And that often is multidisciplinary. That often involves plastic surgery as well as general surgery. So I think ventral hernia is really changing a lot, and it's interesting to me, but many ventral hernias are now fixed open, and laparoscopy is only used to take down adhesions, and then they make an open incision and start doing component separation and other maneuvers to bring the abdominal wall back together primarily with mesh. But um, So ventral hernia repair has changed. So the first thing for me is I don't do abdominal wall reconstruction. I refer it. So if I think the defect's too big, I refer it and I don't repair it. If it's a smaller defect where I think the patient would be well served with a a bridge uh, defect repair with mesh, um, the next thing I look at is how many defects or, you know, is this incisional or primary ventral? So uh, I think for residents, trying to determine whether to use an open or a laparoscopic approach, number one, it depends on the surgeon's expertise, but part of it is, is it incisional is it a primary hernia repair? How big is the defect? Um, and also, how big is the patient? Because I find the more obese the patient, the better benefit there is to doing it laparoscopically. And the thinner the patient, the less the benefit is to do it with laparoscopic techniques. So, for example, a thin male patient with a two centimeter hernia at the belly button, at the umbilicus, there's no point in doing it laparoscopically. You can make one two centimeter incision and repair it. But what if that defect were five centimeters? Well, then I think laparoscopy does make sense. Um, All incisional hernias, I I start out laparoscopically because I believe that the laparoscopic lysis of adhesions is the payoff. Whether you make an open incision to do the mesh repair is dealer's choice. Um, I try not to because I think it hurts less and it's a faster recovery for the patient. But they do get more postoperative seromas, so you got to pick which you prefer to deal with. Um, but to me, the minimally invasive lysis of adhesions is the money. And so all incisional hernias where I'm anticipating adhesions, I start out laparoscopically. Hmm. So you even use a combined approach, um, for some of those. I, I do use a combined approach. I don't do them all laparoscopically, but I would say I do the lion's share still laparoscopically. And I also think, um, the most important thing is that we must tailor our operations to our patients and we should not tailor our patients to our operations. Now, I do want to ma- mention one other thing that you started to allude to. Um, we are, and Sages is behind this effort through a lot of the work done up at McGill University in Montreal. Um, but enhanced recovery is an important part of quality and an important part of outcomes. And part of enhanced recovery, and we got this from the orthopedist, is prehab. 
Um, you know, is in other words, getting ready for your operation. And what can patients do to get ready for their operation to tip the scales and better, get a better outcome? And I'll tell you, stop smoking. I will not do an elective hernia repair on someone that smokes cigarettes. We know the outcomes are worse. We know the infection rates are higher. We know the recurrence rates are higher. Stop smoking for 90 days. Um, for people that have a body mass index above 35, they need to lose weight before getting a mental hernia repair to get a better outcome. We know the recurrence rates are significantly higher when they're morbidly obese. So put them on some type of a modified liquid diet preoperatively. Even if it's two weeks beforehand, you get 20 or 30 pounds off. It could tip the scales towards a better outcome. Get them exercising beforehand so that they can be up and moving faster postoperatively. If they don't exercise pre-op, they sure as heck aren't going to do it with a bunch of fresh incisions to heal. <laughs> so I think part of the way of getting better outcomes with ventral hernia is preparing the patient for the operation. And you can do that with good in informed discussion in the office and explaining why it's necessary. And most importantly, getting the patient to buy into that, that they have a hand in their outcome is critical. When, they, when the light bulb comes on and they realize, hey, I can influence how my operation goes, they're all in. And that's what we need to be doing as surgeons is getting teaming up with our patients to help them get ready for the operation to deliver better outcomes. Fantastic. Well, that leads us into our final five. These are five questions we ask all of our guests to get to know them a little bit better. Uh, so, Dr. Romanelli, uh, I know you're kind of famous for this because I found an article in uh, one of the uh, Massachusetts newspapers about this, but uh, do you listen to music in the operating room, and if so, what type? So, I don't know if it's famous or infamous, but nonetheless, that is true. Um, most of the time, I'll tell you my one exception, then I'll answer the question. I don't listen to music when I'm doing robotic surgery because when you're sitting inside the robotic, with your head inside the console, um, it can be difficult to communicate with the team. Now, there is a microphone to speak into, um, but I find adding music to the room makes it hard to communicate with the operative team. Uh, so that's my one exception. When I am listening to music, it's generally hard rock from the 80s, something along the lines of Van Halen, Journey, Bon Jovi, Rush, uh, that type of stuff. So 80s hard rock. Great. So... Um, I, I know Kevin wants me to ask a couple of these too. Uh, I'm already privy to the answers of most of them, but, um, do you have, or do you want to tell the audience or the podcast listeners what your outside hobbies, talents, or interests are aside from operating? Yeah, I'm, I'm a musician. Um, I, you know, just like I said, uh, that priests are frustrated singers, surgeons are frustrated musicians. So that's definitely true. <laughs> um, I play multiple instruments. I'm a guitarist. I play keyboards. I play trumpet. I can sing as well. Um, I've played in a rock band called Plan B for uh, eight and a half years. Surgery's Plan A, so music's Plan B for me. Um, but we're also called Plan B because there's no alternative because we don't play any alternative music. So there you go. So yeah, I, uh, I play rock music for fun on the side. Is it an 80s cover band or? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we, all the bands I just mentioned, we play all of that. <laughs> Great. Um, have you, can you tell us about a favorite trip or vacation you've been on recently? Um, sure, yeah. Um, I, I do like to travel. I travel quite a bit. I just in the last uh, two and a half months been to Costa Rica and to Iceland. Um, my favorite trip, I'm, I'm, I'm Italian-American. I, I Full disclosure, I, I love Italy. Uh, I, I aspire one day to have a house there, um, and there's not a square inch of it that I've seen that I didn't love. Uh, I've been, I love Rome, I love Venice, I love Florence, I love Cinque Terre, I love the Amalfi Coast, Sicily. Uh, so I'm kind of a sucker for Italy. I go there every few years, and I'm actually teaching myself Italian so that the next time I go, I don't have to speak English. <laughs> All right, and I know Plan B is music, but uh, career-wise, if you couldn't do medicine, what would you do? I would have been a sports broadcaster. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a complete and total sports nut. I'm addicted to it. I, I bleed ESPN. Um, my, my particular passions are New York Yankee baseball and Notre Dame football. Um, but yeah, I would have been a sports broadcaster. I love talking about it. So not you're in Red Sox country, but you're a staunch Yankee fan, I hear. Well, you know, just like they used to have signs in Berlin that said you're now in the American sector, in my office there's a picture of Bucky Dent's famous home run where he got the nickname Bucky Bleeping Dent in Boston. 
where uh, he led the Yankees to a win in 1978, which led us to yet another World Series win. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, no, I, there's a sign, a picture of Bucky Dent signed in my office so people are aware they've entered Yankee country. There's actually a lot of, in Springfield, it's about one-third Yankee fans, interestingly. Yeah, it's pretty frustrating. I'm a Tampa Bay Rays fan, and uh, when you're down in Tampa and the Red Sox or Yankees are in town, it's probably 60% Red Sox or Yankees fans and 40% Tampa Bay Rays fans, but... Yeah, it's from all the northern yeah. transplants. Unfortunately, that's Florida in a nutshell. But it's fun when we beat them with their big uh, rosters and stuff. So Absolutely. Understood <laughs> completely. I haven't been down to Tropicana Field yet, but it's on my bucket list. I've actually been to 30 baseball stadiums. And I can say, going back to the other question, the coolest one is I saw baseball in Chiba, Japan. Uh, and former Red Sox manager Bobby Valentine was the manager of the Chiba Latte Marines as they played the Hiroshima Toyo Carp. So that was a pretty neat experience. That was back in 2008. I was out there for a, me- a surgical meeting, and they took me to a baseball game. So that was a heck of an experience. But yeah, it's one of my hobbies is going to different baseball stadiums in different cities. And I try to get the one new one uh, per year. Last year, I made it to see the Washington Nationals. So I right. don't know where I'm going to go yet this year. In <laughs> uh, our last one, if you could go back in time and meet yourself on the first day of internship, what piece of advice would you give yourself? Uh, control your temper. Uh, I was a hot-headed Italian-American kid from New Jersey where we speak fluent vulgarity uh, as the vernacular. And uh, I had a wild temper and I used to get angry and yell at people and get into arguments and fights. And and a lot of people did. It wasn't just me. I wasn't a fish out of water. In fact, I was a fish very much in the right pond. Um, But it doesn't serve you well. And listen, surgery is is hard as, as both Erica and Kevin, you know, Training to become a surgeon is a grueling experience over many, many years. Um, the, the sweat equity that residents have to use to become surgeons are, are something that the public does not understand and will never understand. Um, they don't really understand that you basically give away five to seven years of your life that you don't get back. Um, most people gain weight. Their health declines. They don't exercise much. Um, they lose friendships. <laughs> they lose marriages. Um, and and you have to do that to focus this much to learn how to do surgery. So, you know, the best advice is to not be overwhelmed by it. Um, is, is, you know, honesty and integrity means everything in this business. Um, your patients demand it, your colleagues require it. Um, medicine as a whole depends upon it. And so, you know, be honest and be yourself, uh, control your temper Uh, Be respectful of the learning opportunities afforded you. um, And most importantly, don't stop asking why. Erica, how's he doing at uh, controlling his temper? I've seen dramatic improvements since I started intern year, I think. Um, (laughs) No, he's he's a great role role model. Um, And I, especially with his patients, but in the OR as well, he's one of the surgeons that we do model ourselves after, so... We're lucky. No, it absolutely sounds like it. Dr. Romanelli, it was a complete pleasure uh, to interview you today and to learn about notes and uh, surgical quality and ventral hernia repairs. Um, I think all of our listeners will very much enjoy this episode. Thank thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure, and I wish you the best of luck. Until next time, dominate the day. (laughs) 